0: If you have Bibles, uh, we are in the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 4, page 859 and then immediately into 860 is where you will, uh, will find today's, uh, today's text. Let me begin just briefly with a word about the potential offensiveness of the series that we are in uh, this month. Uh, there is a solid chance, if you haven't already realized it, uh, there's a solid chance that many of you will get offended by something that is said um, during this month focusing on mercy and justice issues. Uh, we've been doing this month now long enough that um, I've fully come to expect that. Uh, I'm also okay with that. I'm also okay with that, especially if it's the word of God that is offending you. As, as I've said before, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an equal opportunity offender. It's an equal opportunity offender. If you aren't offended by some aspect of the gospel and its implications, then my concern is that you, you haven't actually listened to it, you haven't actually understood it. Like a surgeon's scalpel, the gospel must wound us in order to expose the sin that is, that is present in our hearts in order to, to heal us. And, th- and that's not a one-time event that happens as we become Christians. That's a lifelong process of that happening over and over again. When I take uh, honest stock of of my life, it becomes painfully obvious that that sanctification, this process of being transformed to become like Jesus, that has not often been characterized by calm and and pleasant niceties. Far more often it's violent, uh, it's turbulent, Uh, hardly ever does it happen at the time and in the place and in the ways and from the people that I think it should or that I want it to be from. And it's when this mirror is held up and I don't like what I see in the mirror and I have then this this visceral kind of offended reaction where it's not me that has to change, it's not me that's messed up, it's actually something wrong with the mirror because I'm fine. That's when that starts to begin the process of growth very often in, in my life. So the danger of this month is actually not that you would get offended. The danger of this month is that you would walk away from that without considering why something incites such a strong response in you. As a counselor of mine once said, resistance is where the gold is. Resistance is where the gold is. So so don't ignore that offense. Don't ignore the resistance if it comes up in you. And if you're a Christian, don't assume that, that your views are already perfectly shaped by God's word. Let the word of God actually be to you a mirror, be to you a scalpel. Let your offense open your eyes to places where God might be doing transforming work in you, where he might have more transforming work to do in you, because no doubt in my mind he does in you and he does in me. This morning we are in Luke chapter 4. Luke is recounting the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So after Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John, he's led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. Remaining faithful through that temptation Jesus then returns to Galilee, and he begins to teach in synagogues. And initially, he's received well, until we come to this text, where he returns to his own hometown of Nazareth. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Luke chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the town, the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Guide us, O God, by your word and by your spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we might find freedom, and that in your will we might discover your peace. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Christians are freed people who free people. So we are set free from our sin by Jesus, and then by the grace of God, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are part of setting other people free. So in light of Jesus' words here in Luke chapter 4, there's two inseparable aspects of the Christian life that we'll talk about this morning, just briefly with the time we have together. And those are identity and mission. Identity and mission. So first, let's talk about identity. You and I are actually included in the words of Jesus here. How so? How so? Consider why he is rejected in Nazareth. The the Jews of Nazareth, they hear him read from the scroll of Isaiah, and initially, they speak well of him. They marvel at the graciousness of his words. And then he keeps talking. And then he keeps talking, and he says, this isn't just going to be for you, my fellow Jews. Remember Elijah? Well, he went and ministered to the widow of Zarephath, who was not a Jew but a Gentile. And it was not because Israel lacked widows that were in need, but it was because God's heart is for the oppressed, for the lost outside of Israel. And he says, remember Elisha. Well, God used him to heal Naaman the leper. Now, Naaman wasn't a Jew either. Naaman was actually the commander of the Syrian army, the commanding general of an enemy nation. And he wasn't healed because Israel lacked lepers, because all the lepers had already been healed in Israel. He was healed because God's heart is for the sick and for the oppressed outside of Israel too. As he begins his ministry, Jesus proclaims that his good news, his liberty, his healing will extend far beyond the people of Israel. And he's not merely a prophet proclaiming a promise from God. As he says in verse 21, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is both prophet and Messiah. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophetic words from so many centuries before. And as we come to see in the rest of Luke's gospel, by his perfect life, by his death, by his resurrection from the dead, the good news and favor of God is extended to all people, people of every tongue and tribe and people and nation. This is really good news for us because almost all of us in the room this morning are Gentiles. Our ancestors were Gentiles. We were those previously separated from the family of God, but now included in the words and included in the work of Jesus. Beyond that, when Jesus uses the phrase or the word liberty here, we need to make sure that we're thinking about that comprehensively. It, of course, refers to physical liberation from physical forms of slavery. And nobody would know that better than the Jews that were hearing this, the Jewish men and women hearing these words. Men and women whose ancestors had been slaves in Egypt who had been then set free by the mighty hand of God. Men and women whose ancestors, even more recently, had been enslaved exiles in Assyria and enslaved exiles in Babylon and had again been set free by the mighty hand of God. But even for those who have never been physically enslaved, when Jesus uses the word liberty here, he also has in mind spiritual liberation from spiritual slavery. And in the chapters that follow, Luke, the author of this gospel, will use the same exact word, the word that's translated liberty here in this text, to mean forgiveness. As we continue to observe Jesus' ministry in Luke, we come to see that Jesus setting at liberty those who are oppressed, the line that he reads from Isaiah's scroll here, includes healing the sick, casting out demons. It includes the forgiveness of sins. So in the next chapter even, Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals... A paralytic, a man that's been paralyzed. But before he does, the first thing he says to that man is not, get up and walk, it's, son, your sins are forgiven. A few years after, the Apostle Paul, who was the fellow worker, the the companion of Luke, he will over and again use this metaphor and use this imagery of liberation from slavery to describe our very salvation. So Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So physically, spiritually, the people of God are a freed people. They are a liberated people. That's their heritage. That's their identity. And that is our identity as Christians. And as a church, we think this is so amazing. We think this is so important that we named ourselves after it. So Liberty Church, spelling challenged as it seems that we are, it's a Latin word that means freed people. People who once had been enslaved but have now been set free through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Christian, this is your identity. This is your identity. This is who you are As a Christian. So let me ask you this morning, is it also your present experience? Is it also your present experience? Are you free? Are you experiencing the freedom that has been proclaimed, that has been purchased for you by Jesus? Because sin is slavery, there are a thousand things that might enslave us. In light of this focus this morning on human trafficking, on sexual exploitation, let's hone in just for a moment on God's design for sex and sexuality. Are you experiencing true freedom in this aspect of your life? The Word of God affirms a very different understanding of sexual freedom than our culture does. And in many ways, actually, our culture has it completely backward from what God says. What many would call in our day sexual freedom, God would actually call slavery. And what many would call oppressive and restrictive sexually in our day, God would actually call freedom. From the beginning, the good and beautiful design of God is that sex and sexual activity is the physical expression of a marriage union between one husband and one wife. Jesus himself upholds the same definition in his teaching. And what this means is that things that our society celebrates, things that our society indulges in, like pornography and hookup culture, homosexual activity, polyamorous sexual activity, really any form of sexual activity expression outside of a marriage between one man and one woman is not freedom, but it's actually slavery. Even, and this is the important part, even if it doesn't seem that way, even if it doesn't feel that way. Because... Rather than living in light of the good design of God, what we do when we participate in these things is we entrench ourselves against that good design. And like a hostage under Stockholm Syndrome, we begin to embrace our captor as if he were our friend. I'm only able to just scratch the surface on this today, but at the risk of not being able to say enough, let me at least say something. Why? Because too often, too often we think that human trafficking and sexual exploitation, and other forms of sexual sin are completely unrelated topics. But they are related. They are related. Not only because things like pornography are part of what fuels the demand for sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. That's true. The statistics bear that out. But at an even more fundamental level, as freed people, we must never be content with trading one form of slavery for another. We can't, with any kind of integrity, reject God's good design in one way and then seek to uphold it in another. So please hear me really clearly on this. I don't want to fully equate other forms of sexual sin with human trafficking. There are important differences there. My point is that we cannot make the mistake of thinking that these things are not related to each other because they are related to each other. In this series, I'll reference a few books by an author named Scott Saul's. In his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, there's a great chapter in there about chastity and sexual freedom that further explores this topic of of what does God actually call freedom when it comes to sex and sexuality. It's been really helpful for me, at least personally, um, in faithfully and graciously navigating brokenness and issues that are incredibly complex and sensitive in our day. Uh, In one of his other writings, Scott Sauls makes this incredibly insightful observation that has everything to do with our making sure that that our definitions of freedom actually line up with God's definitions of freedom. And he writes this, he says, As Scripture unfolds from Old Testament to New, it becomes more progressive in the way it dignifies, empowers, and liberates women, ethnic minorities, the enslaved, and the oppressed. At the same time, Scripture assumes a more conservative tone in the way it speaks about sex and marriage. For example, polygamy, a common marriage malpractice in the Old Testament, disappears by the time we get to the New. Starting with the Gospels, Jesus reaffirms that in the beginning, God made them male and female, and the two, the male and female, will become one flesh. So the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus, were in that day progressive in their empowerment and liberation of women and other oppressed peoples. And it was more conservative in sex and marriage. All in the name of genuine freedom, according to the definitions that God gives us. So do you start to see how interconnected all of this is? If you are currently enslaved to sexual sin in your own life, if you're not experiencing the reality of your identity as a freed man or a freed woman, it will derail your pursuit of seeing other people set free. You might try to care about human trafficking from a place of guilt. You might try to do it to to pay God back, to atone for your own own sins. You might do it to try to convince yourself that, that your issues and your kinds of sin aren't as big a deal as other people's. But if you are enslaved yourself, you'll never be part of freeing others the way that you're meant to from a deep and personal experience of your own identity as one who is set free by Jesus. All that to say this, son or daughter of God, you are free So be free. Be free. That's our identity. Second, let's talk about the incredibly related topic of our mission. First words that Jesus reads here from Isaiah are what? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus proclaims and fulfills the physical and spiritual liberation by the power of the Spirit of God. His mission is carried out and empowered by the Holy Spirit's work in him and through him. Now here's the amazing part. So is yours. So is mine. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. Dwells in we who belong to God. And when Jesus accomplishes his work and ascends back to the Father in heaven, he sends his spirit to dwell in us so that among other things, we might do the same kind of work that he did so that we might participate in and further his mission in our time and in our place. So this is one of the amazing, scandalous realities of the mission of God, right? That we who are saved by it are swept up into it and then become part of advancing it with other people. Or put simply, freed people free people. Freed people free people. Just as Jesus' mission encompasses both physical liberation, and spiritual liberation, so does ours. As Christians, our our hearts break and we labor to see an end to various forms of modern-day slavery, like human trafficking, like sex trafficking, like sexual exploitation. And this is why it's such a gift to partner with the people of Peace Promise, with such a great organization that that is on the front lines of this issue in our own backyard and are working as part of broader national and global work that must be done. Visit with Patty and Asa and the other women who are here from Peace Promise today back at their table after the service. If you didn't get to on the way in, I'd encourage you to stop by on the way out. Or as you read in your bulletin, Wednesday night here in the fellowship hall at seven o'clock, we'll have a follow-up meeting to learn more about what it would look like to get involved to combat human trafficking, to work with organizations like, like Peace Promise. So come to that. Now I'm confident, I'm confident that everyone in this room is in favor of seeing victims of human trafficking liberated when it's a clear-cut case of abduction or sexual slavery or forced prostitution or something like that. But let me ask you also this morning, what is your disposition, what is your heart-level response toward prostitutes, toward strippers or exotic dancers, toward porn actors and actresses? Do you find yourself in your own heart becoming self-righteous toward women, toward men like these? Do you find yourself thinking that someone is less deserving of help, of care, because they are quote-unquote willing participants? If so, then I beg you to consider the kind of inner turmoil, the kind of spiritual bondage an image-bearer of God must be in to willingly give themselves to this. Can you look, if it even is willing at all in the first place, as you heard from Patty and Asa this morning, can you look beyond the surface and perceive the lies that a person must believe, the shame that they must carry, the warped sense of image and identity that must be their constant companion? If they are willing, it is only because sin has wreaked havoc in their hearts and minds. It is not supposed to be that way. It is not supposed to be that way for an image bearer of God. So if you find yourself, if you find self-righteousness and hardness in your heart when you think about your disposition toward people that are quote-unquote willing participants, let your hard heart break with compassion for people who are enslaved that were meant to live as free. Our mission is not only one of physical liberation, it is one of spiritual liberation. From the entrenched patterns of sin that, that people persist in, the specific ways that people are prone to Reject God. We are those, as Christians, because of our identity, who long to see captives set free in every respect. For as much as Jesus says here in this text, there's actually an important omission. There's an important omission. From the scroll of Isaiah, Jesus reads, at the end of it, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. And then he stops. The full line... The next line in Isaiah, in the original writing, you can read it for yourself in Isaiah 61, says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Why does Jesus stop? Because there is a day, there is a day of God's vengeance against sin. But it is not this day. The first time that Jesus comes, he comes not to judge, not to avenge, he comes to save And the fact that there's a delay of vengeance, a delay of judgment, is part of why Jesus is so violently rejected and almost killed by the people of his hometown in Nazareth. As one scholar observes, Jesus' audience would suppose that the day of their own salvation would also be the day of judgment on their pagan enemies. But the delay of judgment means that this time of the Lord's favor benefits the Gentiles also. So the Jewish, think about this, the Jewish listeners are fine with Jesus' words. They marvel at the graciousness of them until what? Until he doesn't operate the way they want him to. And they don't want the good news and the favor of God to extend to the Gentiles. They are content to let that liberation terminate on themselves and those they deem deserving and and for that to be the end of the story. Let us not make the same mistake. Because herein lies the difference between combating human trafficking as a social justice warrior and combating human trafficking as a Christian. As a Christian, we don't merely long for the physical liberation of victims of human trafficking. We do long for that. But we also long for the spiritual liberation of the perpetrators and the oppressors themselves. Not for amnesty or avoidance of justice or no consequences, but for the kind of spiritual freedom that completely eradicates the demand for and the practice of human trafficking itself. To be consistent, to be comprehensive, Christians are also those who pray for and who labor to free the ones who demand these wicked things. They are the people who provide these things and profit from these wicked things. Why do we care about that? Because there's another line in the scroll of Isaiah. Because there is a day of the vengeance of our God. There will come a day where unrepentant oppressors and perpetrators of evil like this will be met not with the vengeance of governments, not with the vengeance of social warrior vigilantes, but the vengeance of God himself. And oh that those men and women would repent and would turn from their evil before that day comes. Because otherwise, as much as that day will bring comfort for the victims of their oppression, It will bring destruction. It will bring damnation for themselves. The day of God's vengeance will come. Until it does. The mission of Jesus, the mission that you and I as Christians carry in the world, is to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And to every ear in the original Jewish audience of Jesus' words here, this would be a clear allusion to something called the year of jubilee. Jubilee the year of jubilee. In Leviticus 25, God commands that after every 49 years, seven times seven, the 50th year was a year of jubilee, a year of liberty. Property that was sold to pay debts was returned to its original owner. Debts were forgiven. What else? Slaves were set free. So when Jesus says, the Spirit is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and follows it up by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing what he's saying is that this period of time between his first coming and his second is characterized by this jubilee. Not that sin is completely eradicated, not that suffering and injustice and oppression are over. Not yet, not yet. But that by his own body and blood, offered up for the life of the world, Jesus is at present forgiving debts and he is setting people free. A few years ago, Sandra McCracken and Derek Webb included this beautiful line in their song, Mercy Speaks. And it says, All her debts were cast on me, meaning Jesus, so she must and shall go free. All her debts were cast on me, so she must and shall go free. Christian, by the work of Christ, this is you. This is you. This is your identity. You are a freed person, and so be free. Be free in your understanding and your expression and practice of sexuality in every aspect of your life as well. Experience the freedom that has been proclaimed and purchased for you by Jesus. And then let this forever compel your prayers and your labors to set others free. Because Jesus has set you free, may you join his mission to see others liberated from their physical and from their spiritual slavery. Freed people free people. May it be said of us. Amen. Amen. Jesus, you came into this earth proclaiming liberation for the captives. And we, apart from your intervening grace and mercy, are those captives. You have set us free by the great cost of your body and blood, offered up for us and all who believe and all who would come. May that identity of ours propel, compel, fuel love for those who remain captives physically and spiritually in our day. May we be those who labor, who pray to see others set free. Our integrity, because of our identity, demands it. But may the the strength, may the motivation to do such a thing always be because of the great mercy, the great freedom we ourselves have received from you. And we come now, to this table, to remember the cost of it, to be renewed in the grace of it yet again. Pray this all, Jesus, in your name. Amen.